When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the, the good news is that we still have a Supreme Court, that they still, they still <laughs> make decisions. I good news. <laughs> Other countries, it's called, I'm sorry, you can't come in, you have to leave. Today, we are seeing the rule of law eroded in the sense that he's celebrating this as a personal political victory. This is an epic level of trolling from Senate Majority Leader McConnell here. As long as he puts a very thin veneer of national security on top of all that discrimination and racism, they will buy it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says, if it's not your hair, don't run for office. Donald Trump. He claims his unfake hair has been tested in winds of up to 60 miles per hour. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So in recent days, it's been difficult to maintain a sense of proportion about Donald Trump's abuses. In human terms, separating 2,500 children from their families, using them as a bargaining chip, and then being unwilling or unable to reunite most of them with their families is easily the most abhorrent thing he's done. This is a policy so vicious that even the president recognized that it was unsustainable. It's one of a very few times he has ever backed down. Ripping migrant children from their parents is a violation of human rights and human decency so extreme that it degrades all of us as Americans. So I don't want to take my eye off that ball by getting all excited about whether Sarah Huckabee Sanders should have been allowed to have dessert at the Little Red Hen or about defending Harley Davidson a company that you might think would be highly aligned with Donald Trump. Compared to forced family separations, those things are trivial. Although Trump's easy-to-win trade war does stand to destroy thousands of jobs at Harley-Davidson and elsewhere. But where family separation is an abuse of people, other recent actions of his are serious abuses of his power as president. When Donald Trump attacks a private restaurant on Twitter, a restaurant whose owner, whatever you think of her, was exercising her legal rights, He's essentially licensing vigilantism. When he threatens to tax Harleys as punishment or essentially calls for a consumer boycott, he's violating his obligation to uphold the law and the Constitution, including its requirements of due process and equal protection. It's trading what Teddy Roosevelt called the bully pulpit for just being a schoolyard bully. Not all of Trump's abuses of people are abuses of the Constitution. And not all of his constitutional abuses are crimes against people. Everything else Trump does is minor compared to his decision to abuse children. That's an evil that can never be forgiven. But it doesn't mean Trump's other dictatorial moves can be forgotten either. We've got to keep a sense of proportion, but recognize that an act of massive cruelty doesn't mean we should ignore the lesser evils. Coming up on the show, the travel ban decision. I'll be back with Emily Bazelon of Yale Law School and the New York Times Magazine right after we do the tweets. Supreme Court upholds Trump travel ban. Wow. 
surprised that Harley and Davidson, of all companies, would be the first to wave the white flag. I fought hard for them, and ultimately, they will not pay tariffs selling into the EU, which has hurt us badly on trade, down $151 billion. Taxes, just a Harley excuse. Be patient, MAGA. A Harley-Davidson should never be built in another country. Never. Their employees and customers are already very angry at them. If they move, watch. It will be the beginning of the end. They surrender. They quit. The aura will be gone. And they will be taxed like never before. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, an extraordinarily low IQ person, has become, together with Nancy Pelosi, the face of the Democratic Party. She has called for harm to supporters, of which there are many, of the Make America Great Again movement. Be careful what you wish for, Max. Joining me on the line is Emily Bazelon, she of the New York Times Magazine, Yale Law School, and of course, the Slate Political Gab Fest. Coming to me from what, an airport in Chicago en route to somewhere, Emily? Exactly. <laughs> Just where everybody wants to be. Well, thank you for making time in transit. I, I uh, immediately wanted to talk to you when I saw the news of this decision, which was a little surprising, right? I mean, they were overturning two appeals courts decisions. Did you think, if you had to guess, this would go the other way? No, I never thought this case was going to go the other way, not with our current Supreme Court. Because, you know, for starters, so the, the I should say, we should say, it was a 5-4 decision, and Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion. And he begins with a long um, persuasive passage about the great deal of power the president has, any president, under the Immigration and Nationality Act. Mm. And with that as a starting point, the problems that President Trump caused for himself with all of his derogatory comments about Muslims kind of... They, it's not that they fall away. Um, I mean, certainly the dissent is concerned with them, but they, um, at least in the majority, do kind of pale in comparison to the amount of power the president has. I mean, an issue in this is this ban, which is on visitors from six predominantly Muslim Muslim countries plus North Korea and Venezuela. And the question is whether that's religious discrimination, right? And how did how did Roberts and the majority rule that it wasn't, given the things Trump said, that he wanted a complete shutdown of Muslim immigration? I mean, it was the stated purpose of the act. Right. So here you have, I would say, the most interesting part of the opinion, in which Roberts quotes Trump. And then he basically says, it's a sort of hold-your-nose part of the opinion. He basically says, um, it's not up to us to denounce what the president said. It's up, up to us to decide whether that means that a presidential directive, and now I'm quoting, that's neutral on its face is invalid. And so, you know, the real choice here between the majority and the dissent is do you take 
the um, travel ban on its face. Because, of course, we're talking about the third version of the travel ban that went through some regular government process that, as we said, has North Korea and Venezuela thrown into it to make it look less directed at Muslims. And if you're just looking at that text and you don't really care what President Trump said um, in other settings, then it's a pretty clear case. And so that's really what we're talking about. You know, in the law, it's this concept of what's called facial neutrality. When you just look at something and that's all you take into account is that, um, does that look neutral? And then is that good enough? But under that Robert standard, how could a law ever be discriminatory unless it announced itself as discriminatory? I mean, unless it said in the law that the purpose of this law is to discriminate against Muslims. Well, you can still have a law that's invalidated because it has discriminatory intent behind it, like you're saying, or discriminatory impact. But this law under, you know, our immigration laws doesn't, the fact that it's discriminating against people based on their nationality is like written in, it's like baked in, right? And, you know, Roberts points out that President Reagan banned um, Cubans from getting visas for a time and Carter did it with Iranians. And so that's the problem here. It's the um, nexus between our immigration laws and how they work and this idea of facial neutrality. Roberts uh, made a point or took a detour in this decision to overturn finally the Korum, the notorious Korematsu decision, which was the decision that upheld the interning of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Why is that case relevant here? Why did, why did Roberts do that? And why is everyone talking about Korematsu in relation to this case? Well, it really goes back to your question before about what are the limits on the government's authority if it's claiming to do something that it has the power to do, but it clearly seems like it has this noxious um, taint to it in terms of racial discrimination, what are the limits? And so the plaintiffs, the challengers of this law brought up Korematsu, and so does Justice Sotomayor in her dissent. Roberts kind of takes that um, as uh, an excuse to overturn Korematsu. So he says... Um, Whatever rhetorical advantage the dissent may see in doing so, Korematsu has nothing to do with this case. So first, he's getting rid of it in terms of legal relevance. Uh-huh. And then he basically says, well, but I'm going to take this occasion to say that it was gravely wrong and has been, as he put it, overturned by the courts of history. Do you think Sotomayor is right to say this is a new Korematsu? I mean, is this case comparable to that in its, you know, are people going to be reading this at Yale Law School decades hence as, as an example of bad law, bad legal reasoning? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that, that Sotomayor is right, that there are parallels, that you can have a really ill-advised government policy that's very wobbly, that when you get past this notion of facial neutrality, you see all kinds of reasons to doubt that the um, president and his administration are doing things for the reasons they say they are doing. And so in that sense, I do think this case is an embarrassment. Um, On the other hand, and I hate to sound like such a sort of um, legal literalist here, but we do have this um, law on the books that Congress put on the books that gives tremendous authority to the president in the scope of immigration. And there are good reasons for that, right? Like you want the president to be able to close the borders if there was a real security crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the problem here is that Trump masterfully took advantage of that power, and this Supreme Court is not willing to call him out on it, not in the majority anyway. 
So Justice Ginsburg joined the Sotomayor dissent, and then there's a separate dissent, if I understand this right, from from Justices Kagan and, and Breyer. And they're, descend- yep, they're, right. they're descending on different grounds. So what's the difference in their view from the Sotomayor-Ginsburg view? Well, Breyer has a much more kind of like fact-specific take on this, which is like a typical Breyer move to make. So he went in and he said, okay, let's like take the government at its word, does it really mean that it's not discriminating? And what I'm going to look at to figure that out is whether they're really granting waivers to people who live in these countries, these banned countries, but have other reasons why they should be able to come in despite the ban. And he points out that in the first month or so of the travel ban, out of, I think, about 6,500 applications for waivers, only two were granted. He sort of puts together a string of evidence like that. And so he is saying that suggests to him that the government was not acting in good faith, that this whole waiver process is a sham, and that's the reason to doubt the professed um, rationale for the travel ban, going back to the sort of underlying, you know, clear expressions of... Um, disapproval isn't the right word, of prejudice against Muslims. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a piece in, in Slate uh, last week that Jeremy Stahl wrote that that said it w- went beyond that. It said essentially these consular officials were instructed by the administration not to grant waivers, to find find pretext for not granting them and, and pointing to, I guess this is Breyer's point, that this wasn't, you know, if, they, if they'd granted waivers, it would show there wasn't religious animus. Um, but this suggests that was just you know, a way to get the law through. Right. I mean, you know, that's a totally good point to make. And I think this question of these waivers, it's like a sort of face-saving move that the Trump administration made, but, you know, they didn't really put it into place. So Mr. Swing Justice Kennedy, again, um, he wrote a kind of funny opinion, I mean, based on a kind of a quick scan of this, it's sort of the rhetoric is, well, he doesn't like this and he doesn't want to see much more of this, but he's not going to do anything about it. I mean, this is, what's the what's the deal with his his separate support for the majority opinion? I mean, I, I will profess to feeling some irritation at these kind of grandiose and vapid statements that Kennedy made in this case. And, you know, it's not exactly the first time. Right. He's kind of professing allegiance to these you know, deeply held American principles about religious freedom, but at the same time, he's jettisoning that. And so it just feels, at least to me, very empty. And what What do you think's going on? There's another piece up in Slate today that, that Rick Hassan wrote, say, sort of reading this, the signal of, of Kennedy's impending retirement, kind of that he's kind of throwing in the towel. I mean, do you, do you see signs of that? Well, there are lots of rumors that Kennedy is going to retire tomorrow or next week. And I mean, that's been true in previous terms. And it's hard to know whether those rumors, like it's in the interest of people who want Kennedy to retire on the right to start or nurture those rumors. So I'm just never sure how seriously to take them. There is something, um, there's something noticeably blunted about Kennedy in this term. You know, the Supreme Court punted on these big partisan gerrymandering cases that it had that seemed like an area of law in which Kennedy was really wanting to make his mark. Um, we're not seeing that happen. And it's just felt like a kind of dud of an end of term. Um, not not today. The travel ban decision is like, you know, solidly decided and over. But if Kennedy wanted to go out, oh, I guess the other thing I should mention is Masterpiece Cake Shop, the um, case about the gay couple denied a uh, cake from Baker in Colorado, that is an area of law that Kennedy takes great pride in. He's seen as a, um, you know, a real champion of gay rights. And so what we're seeing here is um, 
what we're seeing in Masterpiece Cake Shop was Kendi not talking at all not in any way that was really meaningful. And so it's an odd way to go out if that is indeed what he is doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you how the Masterpiece Cake Shop case sort of lined up with this one. Because in that one, the same judges did consider these statements of state officials, in that case in Colorado, as evidence of of anti-religious bias, right? So why is that different? Absolutely. And actually, I made a mistake. I mean, Kennedy complained vociferously about that. It really bothered him. And it seems like a few statements that a state official made at a hearing were determining the entire thing. And he was really worried about that. So, yeah, I think for sure, you know, there is a sense of hypocrisy there. Now, you know, you can defend it on very case-specific facts, grounds, like there was no Immigration and Nationality Act in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. So it's different. But you know, the parallel you drew is a totally legitimate one. Yeah. It's it's hard not to think how this would all be different, Emily, if Merrick Garland had been confirmed and we had him on the court instead of Neil Gorsuch. I mean, is it a given that this would have been a five to four decision the other way if we had Justice Garland and not Justice Gorsuch? Justice Garland would have been a moderate Democrat. And so I suppose it's possible he would have upheld this statute, but it's really hard for me to imagine it. And there have been so many moments this term. I mean, the partisan gerrymandering cases are an example. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop is a possible example. The Ohio voter purge case where, you know, Ohio had this method of purging voters from the rules. That's another one. Um, we're just in a world where you're absolutely right. The difference between the Justice Garland, who has not been, and the Justice Gorsuch, who is a strong vote on the right, is just a profound difference. I saw um, Donald Trump tweeted a picture of himself with Clarence Thomas in the Oval Office with him yesterday or today. I mean, this just feels like a moment, a little like Bush v. Gore, where the court just seems so political and so not neutral. Well, it's funny that you say that, because I think really until today's decision, it looked like Chief Justice Roberts was trying hard to not make that happen, that, you know, even though... Um, the effect of the voting cases I was talking about is to continue these redistricting maps that favor Republicans for yet one more election. They had a kind of neutral uh, veneer about them, right? They were like seven to two or nine to zero because there was some very, very narrow ground on which everyone could agree. But you're right. I mean, today the court feels like a political instrument again. And on top of the voting rights case announced yesterday, the Texas case, where they upheld the, the state-level state, geri- state level gerrymandering. Yes, exactly. And that, um, as again, is going to have, the, you know, that's a, a, an opinion in which when you read Justice Alito's opinion, it seems like highly technical. He decides the case on the grounds of, you know, the lower court got the burden of proof wrong. I mean, it's like boring, really boring. But there is a ton at stake here. And, you know, in that case, again, you see these maps that lower courts have ruled to be racially discriminatory remaining in place for the midterm election. What's at, at this point, what do you think the caption is on the Roberts court? I mean, there are different ways to even read this as a disappointing decision. One can read this as just great deference to presidential authority, which is much more neutral than the sort of Bush v. Gore type interpretation of conservative court taking conservative positions in alignment with the, with the uh, Republican president. Right. You can read it that way. And there are other cases, Robert's Court cases, that have also added to executive authority. On the other hand, when what we were talking about was President Obama's Dream Act, the court... Um, 
did not uphold it. Uh, and that was a, an eight-member court minus Neil Gorsuch. So I don't think you can really argue that this court has a kind of consistent separation of powers theory that is nonpartisan or apolitical. I think we, there are two things about the Roberts Court. One is that it has delivered some absolutely solid, you know, doubles and triples, if not home runs for conservatives in a number of areas. I mean, in corporate law, that has been 100% true. It's actually a home run. And then there have been some areas in which the court has backed away from taking an extremely divisive stance that would, um, you know, alienate a lot of Americans and make the court potentially into a wedge issue for the left, the way it's always been for the right. So now I'm thinking of, like, the Obamacare decision, where Roberts was a fifth vote um, to uphold the law. So it's it's sort of, um, you know, it's as if Roberts and some of the other justices perhaps are kind of marshalling their resources. They don't want the court to become um, completely, uh, they don't want the court's image to just totally topple over um, with the American public so that it seems like Congress or the president, entirely political and discredited. But on the other hand, sometimes they really let loose uh, an important decision that conservatives deeply care about. I mean, it does seem it's, a, you know, two steps in a political direction and then one step back checking it to make sure it doesn't it doesn't go too far too fast. I mean, I guess that's a that's a very external way to read it. The decisions aren't reasoned or written in that way. And I doubt they're talked about that way behind the scenes in the court. But, you know, when the when the um, Obamacare decision came down, Roberts was was the liberal hero for a day. That's right. I mean, I would argue that it's important to remember that Really, it would have been bad for the Republican Party for the Supreme Court to have overturned Obamacare. That would have been deeply unpopular. And a lot of um, people on the right were quietly saying, like, let's just let this law go, or at least it should be repealed by the democratic process. Not to mention that the legal theory for overturning it was like harebrained, honestly, although once you have four votes, it no longer seems that way. Um, So, you know, I think if you look at the course that Roberts in particular has charted, where he makes sure he's in the majority, you see some, you're right, sort of one step away from politics, but I think they're carefully chosen. And I have noticed a pattern where when there's something about the electoral process that is at stake, Roberts is a pretty reliable vote for making it um, harder for people to access the franchise, or as we're seeing here, upholding these maps that favor Republicans. That's interesting. So you can read Roberts as, if you want to, as, as protecting Republicans from the consequences of what would be stupid decisions. I mean, people have you know made a similar argument about Roe v. Wade that if they actually overturned Roe, it would ultimately be bad news for for Republicans and conservatives. So they're you know they're ex- exercising arguably a kind of political prudence there and holding on to it. Yeah, exactly. I think he picks his moments and his targets. And I also think that you know when there is a challenge to um, the right to abortion, a kind of you know real solid, big challenge to it in a world in which Justice Kennedy is replaced by presumably a Trump appointee. That's going to be the moment of truth for conservatives about abortion. And that will be really interesting to watch what Roberts, um, what all of them do. Emily, listeners to this program desperately want to believe that the Supreme Court will act as a final bulwark backstop against the dictatorial president's dictatorial instincts. Is how do how should people feel about that after this decision? And is there anything else still coming this term that is going to point in one direction or another? 
The only really big decision left this term is the one about unions, which I expect will go against the unions, but isn't directly relevant to your question. Um, you know, this decision is not super reassuring for people who are worried about the court standing up to Donald Trump. On the other hand, it's not Donald Trump doing some, you know, crazy thing that no president has ever done before. By the time we get to this third version of the travel ban, where we're looking at something that has all this, like, racial animus in its history, um, but doesn't itself look like it's totally off the walls. So I don't think we can give up on the court as um, a bulwark against, like, a direct assault on democracy. I think the problem is more the familiar one, which Trump cast talks about a lot of kind of eroding norms and smaller steps, incremental threats to the health of uh, of the polity of the country, because institutions are not totally caving in, but they're also not really directly challenging Trump either. I've been speaking to Emily Bazelon. Emily, you are as cogent in transit as you are in the studio. <laughs> thank you for talking to us on your layover. I hope you get out of Chicago. Um, thank you very much, Jacob. It was a pleasure. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced, as always, by Jason DeLeon. Thank you, Jason. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>